So I grew up with pets in the house, right? I had, uh, we had a few cats and a few dogs, and um, we don't have any, in my, in my family right now with my wife and my kids, we don't have any pets uh, because my wife is so allergic to animals, right? Like she's so allergic to animals that she even starts like getting the hives if we drive by a farm. So, you know, that's how bad it is. And we're, we're pretty limited because of that in what we can do for pets. Like we can get a fish. Have you ever tried to play with a fish? It's not that fun. You could, uh, we could get like a bird or we could get a hairless cat, you know, but I just imagine that having a hairless cat can't be all that much fun. I mean, I mean, it's got to be pretty weird to cuddle with the hairless cat. Like it's just all that skin and all the folds and it's weird. And then I just imagine myself waking up in the middle of the night and just being freaked out every single night. Like I'm just walking around I'm like, ah, what is, this? oh, it's the, it's the hairless cat again. You know what I mean? Like, what is that beast? Right. But, uh, but you know for people who do have pets you know a lot of times they like to break themselves up into people who are dog people and people who are cat people right because cats and dogs have very different attitudes very different behaviors I ran across this thing on the internet the other day it was called cat and dog theology and here is lesson one of dog and cat theology I thought this was pretty profound it said this the dog says these people feed me pet me and give me a home they must be gods where the cat says, these people feed me, they love me, and they give me, or they feed me, pet me, and give me a loving home, I must be God, right? And uh, that's the reason that's profound is because I think there's actually probably a lot of people who respond that way as well, right, too. Right? The cat and the dog, they react differently to what? They react differently to the undeserved kindness of their owners. And all of us, let me tell you this, each and every one of you, you have been the recipient of undeserved kindness, from God. That's what grace is. Grace can be defined as the unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor of God. And you think about it like this. Here's, here's how I like to keep it nice and concise in my mind. Justice is the act of giving someone what they deserve, right? So justice is giving someone what they deserve, what they've earned, what's right. Mercy, on the other hand, is the act of not giving someone what they deserve. But grace is the act of giving someone something that they don't deserve, right? And what's incredible about God is that in him, all three of these characteristics come together in perfection. He is just, and yet he is merciful. And we see the expression of these three characteristics in full force in the cross of Jesus Christ, where God dealt justly with sin, with our sin, by taking it upon himself in order that he might show us mercy. That, and all of that together, you know what it was? It was the supreme act of grace. It wasn't deserved. It wasn't earned. It was freely given out of love. When you really get down to it, so much of life is grace. The unmerited, undeserved, unearned kindness of God towards you. Each and every one of you, you have been a recipient of grace. The question is, how will you respond to the grace of God in your life? How will you respond to the grace of God in your life? And here in these chapters we're looking at today, we see a story which is all about receiving and then responding to the grace of God. The title of today's message is Undeserved Favor. And here's what we're going to see in this chapter. First, we're going to talk about experiencing grace in chapter 8. Then we're going to talk about extending grace in chapter 9. And then we're going to talk about the effect of grace. So first of all, experiencing grace. Let's start out in chapter 8, verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took 
some very hard to pronounce name out of the land of out of the hand of the Philistines in our study last week we saw how under the leadership of David as king the nation of Israel was thriving and and what we see here is the beginning of really a golden age a great era in the the time of Israel's history a great period for them for years you know uh, leading up to this things in Israel have just been really a mess they've been in disarray externally they've been under attack from the surrounding nations internally the, the the nation has been divided spiritually the people were just at a terrible place of complacence and indifference but as David this man after God's own heart as he becomes king and steps into that role he unites the people by calling them back to their identity as the people of God and he reestablishes the worship of God at the center of their lives. And now, moving forward, what does he do? He begins to take possession, as we see in this chapter, possession of all the land which God had promised to give them. He's not just going to be arbitrarily taking land. He is taking land according to the promise that God made to Abraham about what land God was giving them as their possession. You know, the first thing we read here is that David defeated the Philistines. Now, for at least a hundred years at this point, the Philistines have just been a constant thorn in Israel's side. Several times, Israel actually stood at the brink of extinction as a nation because of the attacks of the Philistines on them. But now we see that the tide has turned. David has victory over the Philistines. They're no longer a threat. In verse 2, we read that David defeated the Moabites. This was the nation to the east of Israel, on the east of the Jordan. In verse 3, we read that David defeated Hadadezer, the king of Zoab. This was to the north. This would be modern-day Lebanon and Syria. And, uh, and we read that the border of Israel extended all the way to the river Euphrates. Now, if you think about the modern-day borders in the Middle East, where is the Euphrates River? It's in modern-day Syria and, and Iraq. So this means that David greatly extended and expanded the borders of the kingdom of Israel. Only under the leadership of Solomon would the kingdom of Israel ever be any bigger than it was at this time in David's reign. This was really the beginning of a golden age in Israel, a time of peace and prosperity, a time of security and comfort and rest. This was a period in the life of David and the life of Israel that was characterized by blessing. Things were good, let's put it that way. They were in just a great place. They're in a great place with God, and God was just blessing them immensely. Everything was kind of falling into place. And you know, one thing I notice, you know, being around church and stuff, is that a lot of times in church, we spend a lot of time talking about how to navigate the difficult seasons of life, don't we? I mean, you got all kinds of sermons about, you know, dealing with difficulty and coping with difficulty, facing trials. But you know what? What about when things are going well, right? Does the Bible say anything about that? Probably. Actually, it does, and it, it absolutely does. And that's exactly what we see here in chapter 9. Things are going great. What do you do if things are going well? I wonder if there's some of you here today and you say, you know, I mean, I come here and I listen to you talk about how to deal with bad stuff, but honestly, things are going pretty awesome. What should I do, right? Well, let's, let's look at what happens here in this section. That brings us to our second section in chapter 9, which we call Extending Grace, okay? Chapter 9, starting in verse 1. 
David said, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? David, like I said, he was experiencing a time of, of great blessing in his life. God had taken him from being a shepherd, and he had made him a king. I mean, it's incredible. He was experiencing success in his job and in his calling. He's experiencing peace. He's experiencing prosperity. This is really one of the high points of his life. After many years of difficulty, things seem to be really coming together for him now. He's in a good place in his relationship with God, and he's just incredibly blessed in every aspect of life. And so David realizes that, that all these good things that are happening in his life, he says, these are the grace of God towards me. And again, maybe that describes some of you who are here today. I, I can't help but wonder. Maybe this is a season in your life where you say, you know what? I, I am just blessed. I have nothing to, else to say. I'm just blessed. God has been good to me. And honestly, I, I would think that each of us should be able to look at our lives and see the incredible grace of God, the ways that he has blessed you, the ways he has been good to you, simply by grace. You know, sometimes I think we get so focused on the challenges that we lose sight of the incredible grace of God in our lives. If you have experienced the grace of God in your life, if you are experiencing the grace of God in your life, and trust me, you are, uh, how should you respond? That's the question. Check out what David did. He says, God has shown me so much grace. I want to extend that grace to others. So David asks him, so he says, well, he starts asking around and he says, is there anyone still alive from the family of Saul that I may show him kindness for the sake of Jonathan? Now in those days it was customary that when one ruling dynasty replaced another dynasty, the new dynasty would find everybody from the old dynasty and they would kill them all, right? There's just a wholesale massacre of anybody who was even vaguely, you know, connected, roughly connected to the old dynasty, the old administration. This is something that even happened up until more recent times. Uh, if you remember a hundred years ago in the Russian Revolution, the communists overthrew the Romanov dynasty and they murdered the Romanov family, even the children. This is the kind of thing we're talking about. The reason this kind of stuff was done was because if you left anybody alive from the previous dynasty, they would probably come back to haunt you, right? They, they might get a following and they might lead an uprising and try to overthrow you. So for the sake of holding on to power and your own security and your power, you would want to wipe out everybody from the previous dynasty. So it's not at all surprising for David to ask, is there anyone still left from the house of Saul? But what is surprising is how he finished that question, right? Every king would ask, is there anybody left from the old dynasty? But David asks, is there anybody left from the house of Saul? Why? That I may show them the kindness of God. That I may show them kindness for Jonathan's sake. Jonathan was King Saul's oldest son. And Jonathan and David were best friends. The connection that Jonathan and David shared, it was deeper than just common interests or shared hobbies. The foundation of their friendship was that they both had the same heart for the Lord. They both desired to follow the Lord with an undivided heart and to step out in faith and see what great things God might want to do through them if they would only make themselves available to him. 
And at one point, Jonathan and David made a pact. They made a covenant together. And we read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And this is the covenant they made together. There in 1 Samuel 20 verse 42, it says, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Basically what they're saying is, no matter what happens, we are brothers. We are brothers in the Lord. And we have a bond together because of who we are in the Lord that's thicker than blood. And, and we promise right now that we're always going to be there for each other. And if anything should ever happen to either one of us, you know, we're, we're going to be there for each other's kids as well. Even though we're not technically related, we're brothers in the Lord. We are family. These are the kinds of friendships and relationships that are built and fostered through Christian community, you know? Where you're growing together in the knowledge of the Lord and developing a heart for God together. Where you're linking arms together and stepping out in faith and serving the Lord together. You know, I personally, I have a, a large extended family. But in the years that I have spent in Christian community, I have formed a number of these kinds of relationships. These David and Jonathan kinds of friendships that are thicker than blood where you become true family even though you're not technically related it's that linking of arms together in the Lord it's that experience of growing together in the Lord of seeking him together being there for each other praying for each other through the ups and the downs that builds these kinds of relationships like the one we see between Jonathan and David and by the way, that is our vision for what we're talking about as a church. When we say that as, as White Fields, we desire to build and foster this passionate, engaged, and spiritually healthy Christian community. We're talking about creating a space, creating the kind of place that's conducive to these kinds of friendships being built. The kind of community in which we, we are carriers of Christ to one another and in which we build each other up in the Lord. And so here's David, all these years later, years later, so much has happened, so much has changed. Jonathan's no longer alive. David's now become king, and now David remembers the promise that he made to Jonathan way back in the day, that if anything should ever happen to Jonathan, that he would take care of his kids and raise them as his own. You know, many times when people reach the heights of success, you know, famously, we, we've seen it happen in the news and, and with people we've known. People tend to forget about the promises they made way back in the day, you know, when they were nobody and when they had nothing. They forget about the things they said they would do if they ever made it, right? If they were ever successful. It's kind of like, you know, when you're making $25,000 a year and you say, if I ever make $50,000 a year, then things are going to be different, right? I'm going to be generous. I'm going to be a giver. I'm going to support this mission. I'm going to help those people. But it's easy to forget those things, especially in a case like this. I mean, here's Jonathan. He's not even around anymore. He's never going to know if David does this or not. But David is a man of honor and a man of principle. And he says, God has been so good to me. God has shown me so much grace. And now I want to extend that grace to others. And he says, I wonder if there's anyone left from the house of Saul to whom I could show the kindness of God. You know, Saul and his family, they did not deserve kindness from David. They did not deserve David's kindness. Saul did everything he possibly could while he was alive, until he died, basically, to make David's life absolutely miserable. 
And not just Saul, but I mean, look at Saul's family did the same thing. They also treated David terribly. They made his life hard. Do you remember what we saw at the beginning of 2 Samuel? That David was ready to take his position as king, which had been given to him by God. And Saul's family members, they even admit that they know that God called David to be king, but they blocked him right? They, they stopped him. They, they con conspired against him with the military to block him from taking that position as king. And, and yet here's David and he wants to show kindness to the house of Saul. Why? Why would you do that? They don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. Why should David show kindness to them? This was not only completely countercultural in that day, I think it's absolutely countercultural in our day. If someone treats you badly, then why in the world would you want to go out of your way to show kindness to them and their family? Who does that, right? But, but here's why David did it. Look at verse 3. This such a key phrase that he says there. He says, so that I may show them the kindness of God. The kindness of God. You know, there's a difference between the kindness of man and the kindness of God. The kindness of man usually has to be earned, right? Or even if we give it freely, there's an expectation that we're going to get something in return. The kindness of man is often, you know, has strings attached. It has conditions with it. But the kindness of, of God, the grace of God, it's unearned. It's undeserved. The grace of God isn't just given because you deserve it or because of who you are and what you've done. In fact, the grace of God is given in spite of the fact of who you are and what you've done. You know, given, uh, think about the area of forgiveness on a human level. How do we forgive? Well, we'll show grace, we'll show forgiveness if they're really, really sorry right? And they have to prove it to us. They have to prove it, that they really feel terrible about what they did. We want to see that sorrow in their eyes, right? They feel terrible about what they did. They're never going to do it again. And if we even think that, you know what, they're probably just going to do it again, then we won't forgive them because why should we? They don't really feel sorry. If they were sorry, they wouldn't do it again. Can you imagine if the forgiveness of God was like that? If you ever do it again, no forgiveness for you. None of us would receive forgiveness. Human forgiveness says, I'll forgive you if you will take the blame, if you will pay the price because you deserve it. But the grace of God, the forgiveness of God says, I will forgive you and I will bear the burden of that sin myself. I will pay the price. I'll take it on myself if I have to. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? You know, God has been so gracious to David. God has blessed him so much. God has shown him so much favor and kindness. But it wasn't because David deserved it. And David knows that. I mean, how could he not? He was a shepherd. He was nobody. Even his own family didn't think he was anybody. But yet God has shown him favor. David knows it's undeserved. It's unmerited. It's the favor of God. And now David here, he wants to extend that to others. You know, the great thing about the grace of God, the great thing about the kindness of God, is that it doesn't just belong to God. He gives it to us so that we can extend it to others. David wants to go beyond the kindness of man. He wants to extend to others the kindness of God, the grace of God. 
And I wonder if there are any of you here today who this is really the stumbling point. This is where it gets hung up in your relationships that are strained or struggling or maybe in your marriage. You've gone as far as you can with the kindness of man. What you need now is the kindness of God. It's time for you to extend to others the kindness of God, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God. Let's see what happens from verse 3. Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. This guy Ziba, he seems hesitant to give David any information and that's understandable because he probably assumes that the only reason David wants this information is so he can find this descendant of Saul and kill him. That was what every king did in those days. So when Ziba does tell David, you know, okay, hey, there is this descendant of Saul. He's still alive. He's the son of Jonathan, so he's Saul's grandson. But he quickly adds in there the fact that he's lame. Hey, but he's lame. He's lame in both feet, can't walk, totally handicapped, right? What is he doing? He's trying to elicit sympathy in David. He's saying, yes, there is one descendant of Saul, but he's not a threat to you, David. You don't need to take him out. He's handicapped. He can't do anything. You don't need to worry about him. Now, not only is this person lame, but we read that he lives in this place called Lodabar, which means, uh, it literally means no pasture. No pasture. It's just this barren, desolate place. And by the way, you know, fun fact for you here, this is actually the, the Hebrew name for Pueblo, Colorado. Lodabar. Or if you're from California, this is, uh, this is Barstow. If you've ever been to Barstow, right? It's the kind of place that, uh, that you go to hide when somebody's looking for you because people are like, I will go anywhere to find that person and kill them. But I, I'm not going to go to Pueblo. And I'm, I'm probably not going to go to Barstow. I, that's fine. That's enough. That's bad enough by itself. I don't need to add to that. That would just be cruel and unusual, right? I'm pretty sure that half the people who live in Barstow or, or Pueblo, for that matter, are there because somebody actually wants to kill them, right? There's no other good reason that you would live there, right? It, it, I kind of have this theory. It's those people who didn't get accepted into the witness protection program, right? And they're like, I got to go somewhere where nobody's going to kill me. I think I'll go to Pueblo. I'll go to Barstow, right? Because, because what happens is when you're there, right, the guy who wants to kill you, he's like, he's going to drive out there. He's on his way. And then he gets like almost there. He's like, you know what? This is not worth it. I'm just going to go home. Just whatever. Have fun, you know? So in 2 Samuel, that's what we see. He's living in Lo Debar. This is the kind of place that like, you know, nobody goes there. It's barren. It's desolate. It's just this nothing place. A terrible place. So in 2 Samuel 4, we read also about how Mephibosheth, this is the, the person in name, he hasn't been named yet here in this chapter, but we know from chapter 4, his name is Mephibosheth. And he, we know how he became crippled. When he was five years old, we read that, you know, it was during the Civil War and David's troops were winning. And so his nanny was afraid that they were going to come and assassinate him. And so she grabbed Mephibosheth and she was running away to find a place to hide him and she tripped and she fell and he was injured in the process and he became crippled for the rest of his life. And now, not only was Mephibosheth handicapped, but he was poor. 
We know that he was poor because we read that he was living at somebody else's house. He couldn't even take care of himself. You know, in those days, to be handicapped was really a very terrible fate. Uh, and it is the same in, in many places of the world today that don't have the infrastructure that we have to help handicapped people or, to, uh, or have the, the medical technology that we have here in the West. So a person like Mephibosheth in that day, in that society, he would have been completely isolated. He wouldn't have been able to have a job. He wouldn't have been able to get around on his own. He wouldn't have been able to take care of himself. Somebody would have had to take care of him. So he was completely at somebody else's, uh, he was completely at their need. So not only was Mephibosheth crippled and poor, but he was also scared. He's living in hiding, right? They don't want to give away his location. He's hiding and he's hiding in this barren, desolate place, this terrible place in fear of David. Let's go from verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. You know, from the time that Mephibosheth was just a small child, he has been living in fear of this day. This day when there's going to be a knock at the door, right? How many of you have ever had that? You have a knock at the door, you're not expecting anybody, and it causes you a little bit of worry and concern. Well, imagine even more so if you're hiding out for your life and you're afraid that someday somebody's going to find you, and all of a sudden this unexpected knock comes at the door, and you open up the door, and it's the king's men, and they're wanting to take you away. Imagine how terrified he must have been at this moment. He surely expected that this was judgment day. This is the day that it's all going to come down. And so he arrives in King David's court, and that's why we read that he, he prostrates himself on the ground, and he says, I am your servant. Don't you hear the fear in his voice? He's scared. He's saying, please don't kill me. Please have mercy on me. You see, here's the thing. Mephibosheth's view of David was based on assumption, wasn't it? It wasn't based on fact. It was based on assumption. And what was that assumption? Mephibosheth assumed that David was angry, that he was vindictive, that he was hard-hearted. But the truth, the truth about David was that David loved Mephibosheth, even though Mephibosheth didn't even know him. David loved him in spite of his lameness. David cared about Mephibosheth and wanted to see him blessed and restored even though Mephibosheth had done nothing for David and could do nothing for David. You see, what was David doing? He's extending the grace of God to Mephibosheth. Verse 7. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. What do you think going in that day? What do you think was Mephibosheth's greatest hope? What was his, the thing that he was really hoping and praying would happen that day? The thing he wanted most, his biggest prayer. It was, his biggest hope was that David would look at him and say, Mephibosheth, you're lame. And uh, you know what? I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to have mercy on you. If that would have happened, Mephibosheth would have been ecstatic. He would have been overjoyed. He would have been relieved. But David did so much more than just show mercy to Mephibosheth. He showed him grace. Do you see that? He restored to him all the land of his grandfather Saul. David didn't have to do that, but he did it. And even more than that, David invited Mephibosheth to come and live in his house and dine at his table 
every night. You see, David is inviting Mephibosheth to come and live in his house as one of his sons. Carry on from verse 8. It says this. And he paid homage. That's Mephibosheth. He paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring him in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And he was lame in both feet. You know, David says, I don't just want to pardon you. I just, don't just want to show you mercy. I want to I pour out grace on you. I want to return to you all this land that was your grandfather's. I want to give you servants. I want to have them take care of you. I want to provide for you. And you know what? More than that, I want you to eat dinner with me at my table, at the king's table every single night. You know, Mephibosheth, we see he's just blown away by this. He's like, no way. This is too much. Here he has been living in fear. He's been hiding from David. He's been afraid, thinking that David surely doesn't like him, that David's intentions towards him are only bad. But what is this? David brings him into his home to bless him. And not only that, but David is offering to basically adopt him as one of his own sons. And Mephibosheth says, me? You serious? Me? Good for nothing? Worthless old me? I'm just a dead dog. And you would treat me? this way you know think about this what is what does Mephibosheth have to offer David absolutely nothing he, he's lame he's crippled he can't walk he can't work he can't do anything for David to earn David's favor to even repay David for this great kindness you see David doesn't expect anything in return he's not doing this to get something out of it and this is the kindness of God David is wanting to extend the grace of God to this man. And what better a person to do it with than a person who doesn't deserve it, a person who can't earn it, a person who can't pay it back? What better a person to do this with if it is truly the grace of God and not just normal human kindness than a person who should be your enemy, but you treat them as a son? Don't you see that that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? Don't you see that that's the message of the gospel? This story is such an incredible picture of God's grace towards us. You see, like Mephibosheth, we are lame. We are crippled from what? From the fall. You get what I'm talking about? Adam fell into sin. And as a result, we are broken people. We are crippled because of the fall. And some people, you know, they would say, you know, Christianity is a crutch for weak people. No, it is not. Christianity is not a crutch for weak people. It's a hospital for the whole body, for you, because you're a broken person. We're all broken. We're all crippled. There's not a single one of us who isn't broken. And you don't need a crutch. You need a whole hospital. You can't make yourself, you know, people try to make themselves feel better by saying, you know, there are a lot of other people out there who are worse sinners than I am. Oh, congratulations, you know, hip, hip, hooray. But guess what? God doesn't ju judge on a curve, does he? 
He doesn't judge on a curve. The Bible says that all of us, we have to measure up to God's holy standard. If you don't measure up to that, then you've fallen short. And that's what the Bible says, that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. You know, it doesn't matter if there's somebody else out there who's more broken than you are. It doesn't change the fact that you're broken. And you don't just need a crutch, you need a hospital. Most people, even, uh, even some of you here today, I wonder, maybe you're like Mephibosheth. You're estranged from God. You're, you're, you know, rather than seeking him out, you're kind of trying to avoid him because, you, you know, you're living apart from him, assuming that his intentions towards you are, are not good, that he's fed up with you, that he has bad intentions towards you. And as a result of living apart from God, where are you living? You're living in Lodabar, this place of spiritual barrenness, this wasteland. But if you only knew, if you only knew the thoughts that God has towards you, if you only knew the desire of God's heart to bring you in and to bless you and to restore you, and he doesn't want you to remain estranged from him. He doesn't want you to be his enemy. Like David with Mephibosheth, God is seeking you out. He's initiating. He's the one knocking down the door, calling you to come to him. He wants to bring you in and make you his child, one who eats at the table and dwells in the house. David extended the grace of God to Mephibosheth. It was undeserved, it was unearned, and it was favor. David had experienced God's grace in his own life, and, and this is how he responds to it. He responds by extending it to others. And let me ask you this, how about you? You have experienced the grace of God in your life. You have experienced the kindness of God in your life. You've experienced the forgiveness of God. How should you respond? Well, one way that we, we must respond to the grace that God has shown us is the way that David did, by extending that grace to others, by living out the gospel. I like to call it gospel reenactment. And what that is, is that you love people and you treat people in the ways that God has loved and treated you. As Christ has done for you, do so for others. You know, a lot of that, that's actually what the New Testament epistles, the writers tell us over and over. They're telling us, live out the gospel. You've been forgiven, now forgive. You've been shown grace, now show grace to others. As Christ has done for you, so do for others. And I challenge you to consider how you can do that in your life. Consider the grace of God that has been shown to you and how you can extend that to others. And finally, our, our third and final point, and this is, the effect of grace, the effect of grace. At the end of 2 Samuel chapter 9, we read that Mephibosheth, he hobbled up to David's table every day and they dined together. Maybe somebody carried him, like we sang in that song, but he made his way to David's ta table, lame as he was, and they had fellowship together. But you know what? This isn't the last time that we see Mephibosheth here in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 19, uh, several years later, at the time the, of the story in 2 Samuel 19, uh, there was a kind of an uprising going on. You see, one of, Saul, one of David's sons, his name is Absalom. We're going to see his story in a few chapters. He leads a rebellion against David, and he turns everybody against David. And several of David's closest friends turn against him. And Absalom, his son, tries to overthrow him and, and make himself king. And Absalom even takes over the city of Jerusalem and, and David has to flee. 
But there in, in 2 Samuel chapter 19, we see that Mephibosheth, he remained faithful to David. When everybody else turned away, Mephibosheth never did. He remained faithful his whole life. He stayed in Jerusalem and he defied Absalom and he refused to recognize Absalom as king. And by doing so, Mephibosheth was risking his life. Why would he do that? Here he is, this lame man. Why would he go risking his life? He's dependent on other people taking care of him. Why would he risk his life by taking a stand for David? Here's why. It was because Mephibosheth's heart had been touched by the kindness of God, by the grace of God that David had extended to him. And what did that do in his life? It created in him a passionate devotion, a faithful commitment to David. And so he would hobble up to that table every day to dine with the king. And when everybody else turned their back to the king, this man, the crippled man, the one who was an enemy but was made a son, the one who has showed undeserved favor, he remained faithful all his days. Even when David's own sons turned against him, the one who experienced grace, Mephibosheth, he remained faithful. This is the effect of grace. This is what happens when you really come to understand the depth of God's grace towards you. You see, it doesn't result in complacency. It doesn't result in indifference. It, it results in this deep sense of gratitude which produces in you a heart of passionate devotion which drives you to action. You see, Mephibosheth he was looking for an opportunity to do something for David. David had done so much to, for him. He wasn't trying to pay it back. How could he ever pay that back? No, he just loved David and he wanted to do something for him. You know, some people would say that the problem with grace is that if you make people feel secure in God's love for them, if you make people realize that grace is unmerited and it's undeserved, that that will just kill their motivation. They will have no more motivation to do anything for God or to seek God. They'll just settle in and be comfortable, right? Frozen chosen. To, to, to that I would say this, no way. That is not what grace does. That is not what grace does if you really get it. No way. Look at David. Look at Mephibosheth. Just the opposite is true. The effect of grace in their lives was this deep-seated sense of gratitude which produced in them a heart of passionate devotion and drove them to action. May that be true in our lives as well. I believe that all of us have experienced the grace of God. So may God give us a greater realization of that grace and appreciation for that grace so that like David, like Mephibosheth, we would be filled with hearts of passionate devotion to him who loved us and poured out undeserved favor upon us and that that would drive us to action to hobble to his table daily and to extend his grace to others amen let's stand and pray lord we thank you for your grace and we thank you lord for this picture of your grace that we see in mephibosheth lord we pray that you would give us a greater understanding of your grace towards us a deeper appreciation for what you have done for us in christ and Lord, that may that build within us passionate devotion. May it build within us deep conviction. May it build within us love for you and devotion to you that drives us to action. May we hobble to your table daily for fellowship with you. And Lord, may we extend your grace to others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.